0: Welcome to the America's Quarterly Podcast, I'm Brian Winter. China was instrumental in helping Latin America weather the last global financial crisis. Can it do so again?
1: China, you know, could step in and become something of a white knight come to the rescue in some form for some, at least some economies in in Latin America. And whether it does, I think, depends, most importantly, uh, China's own recovery prospects.
0: last global financial crisis in 2008, Latin America did suffer, but not as much as most of the rest of the world. And there was really one reason for this, China. That was the period when China really established itself as a lifeline for Latin America, providing critical investment and, and especially a needed market for the region's exports. Today, the region faces an economic crisis of even greater magnitude. And the question is, can China come to Latin America's aid once again? Is this an opportunity for Beijing to build further influence? Today, we're lucky to have Margaret Myers uh, as our guest. Margaret is one of a very small group of people who truly understand both China and Latin America. Uh, She speaks Mandarin and Spanish. That helps. Uh, She's also the director of the Asia and Latin America program at the Inter-American Dialogue. Margaret, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Brian.
0: So Margaret, you know, China has been at the center of this virus's narrative since the first cases were reported in Wuhan. Uh, Now in recent weeks, um, we've seen the virus begin to shape China's relationship with Latin America. And China has sent masks, uh, tests, and protective gear to countries like Argentina, Chile, Ecuador, and Brazil. What do you make of this initial response? I mean, it it seems like a a fairly clear attempt to uh, build influence. What, What is it you think they're trying to do beyond save human lives.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there is certainly, you know, an altruistic element to this, you know, looking to provide help wherever they can now that they're maybe in a a better position to do so than they would have been a couple of months ago. But Certainly also, you know, China's propaganda, massive propaganda apparatus has been on overdrive of late trying to reshape the narrative that surrounds COVID-19 and to ensure that this virus is not something that's directly associated with China. And first of all, that China's response is seen as one that resulted in a, a fairly rapid containment, although much remains still to be seen in that respect, right? But a fairly rapid containment of the virus and puts China in a position to be something of a global leader in trying to contain the spread globally.
0: So that's part of a global effort. Do you see anything unique about what they're doing in Latin America? Because of course, they I mean, they've sent ventilators to the United States as well.
1: Yeah, not really. I mean... There are uh, some things that they are not doing in Latin America that um, you know that they're doing in, in other countries. So first of all, I mean China, everywhere in the world at this point, has been sending personal protective equipment, masks, other things. They've sent some tests. Some of those have been a little bit controversial, some sent back to China because they weren't functional. But also we've seen, you know, Huawei and other Chinese companies being very active in providing diagnostic and other technologies, even to countries in Latin America that don't recognize China uh, diplomatically. Uh, But that stuff is happening all over the world. What's different is that we've seen um, some efforts in in other regions to help countries to better access the Chinese market um, by reducing certain trade barriers um, I haven't seen, I may be a bit outdated on this, but haven't seen that happening of yet in Latin America, and that would certainly be of benefit, I think, to a lot of countries as they try to maintain certain levels of
0: trade. So I want to ask you how effective that's been, but I feel like first for some of our listeners, we probably need to set the table a bit and talk about where the relationship was, broadly speaking, between Beijing and many countries around the world before the onset of this pandemic can you can you talk to us a little bit about that i mean recognizing certainly that latin america is is not a monolith and that it varies on a country by country basis but looking at it as a region and maybe going into some specifics if you like where where did things stand and how has it evolved how has that relationship or those relationships evolved over the last couple of years
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, at least in an uh, economic sense, right? We've seen a real boom in Chinese activity over the past couple of decades, really starting in the late 1990s. Uh, but that boom, that that rapid growth in in trade, mostly also investment finance, has really started to taper over the past few years. I would say two, three, four years. In particular, there are some years where we see fairly high rates of investment. 2019 was was one of those years. But trade, you know, trade has not grown nearly at the same levels that it has in the past. And, you know, 10 years ago, for example, after the the global financial crisis, when it doubled uh, between 2009 and 2011, we're not seeing those rates of growth anymore.
0: And briefly, why is that?
1: Well, that's largely because, uh, I mean, China is already a critical market for Latin America. It's a top market for many Latin American goods and and the top trade partner for three countries in South America. Um, And so already, you know, this market is of critical importance and there isn't enough more demand. There's not much more room for China to take on more more commodities in particular from, from the Latin American region.
0: In 2019, we did a special issue of America's Quarterly where we assessed the China-Latin America relationship. It had several great authors. You were one of them. And one of the takeaways from that issue was that beyond, you know, the effect of the market being somewhat saturated, um, perhaps, which you're describing now, I mean, there comes a point when your growth rates are just not going to be as high. There was perhaps a bit of wariness or, or even fatigue on the part of Beijing, in part because uh, economies in Latin America were slowing, in part because perhaps they did not find the the regulatory and governmental environment quite as pliant as some other parts of the world where where Beijing also invests and operates. I mean, that was part of the story as well, right?
1: That's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, so in addition to you know, as you said, sort of saturation of the markets in, in the trade realm, we've seen an increase, you know, year after year in especially in foreign direct investment. Um, although that that does indeed fluctuate annually, but we're not really seeing a, a headlong advance right on the part of China into the region where everything that China does is a success. Uh, China has many many failures in in Latin America, and it is even those countries that have been rather those companies that have been operating in the Latin American region for a number of years continue to encounter major obstacles. And they find it, you know, often to be a, a very challenging environment in which to operate. Another challenge in Latin America is that we see these really dramatic political swings, you know, back and forth from very sort of leftward leaning regimes to those that are not. Um, and navigating those political dynamics has been something of a challenge for for Chinese banks and companies over the years so yeah it's not as though it's you know the easiest place to operate and i think there may be a sense among many that uh that china has very few obstacles in the region and that it's it couldn't be further from from the truth um and you know what we're seeing as a result of that is in, in the financial realm at the very least a really rapid decline in Chinese finance to Latin American governments and state-owned enterprises. So the state-to-state finance that China has been engaged in really since 2005 is really no longer a feature of the relationship. We saw practically no finance last year, 1.1 billion, which is really nothing in compared to 35.6 billion that China happened to give the region in 2010, for example.
0: That's a pretty big drop. Um, am I correct in, in believing that a lot of that is due to them having, and by them I mean Beijing, having been burned, so to speak, in Venezuela?
1: That's a big part of it, absolutely. Uh, and I think probably the biggest part of it, that you know Venezuela has received the vast majority, um, over half of Chinese state finance to the region since 2005 and to the tune of over $60 billion. But much of that money has been squandered. A lot of the Chinese projects that were funded by that finance, you know, have gone nowhere. There is no sign of any construction at this point in time. Um, And so for China, you know, the the main objective in Venezuela was was an oil-seeking one, a resource-seeking objective. Um, And still, you know, they are receiving, or at least... In previous years have received payments in oil and so are securing some of those assets. But yeah, I mean, I think this, uh, the, there's a sense, you know, that the Maduro government really can't be trusted to manage these funds in a way that will be promoting or stimulating of economic growth or oil production.
0: Margaret, one of the things that makes you so uh, unique, um, if you don't mind my saying so, is, you know, you have contacts in China and and people who you speak to. And I'm curious, I mean, what do they talk about and how do they talk about the learning experience of the last decade or so um, as it applies to Venezuela, which I understand is sometimes so sensitive that uh, in translations of of articles that come out of the West, the word Venezuela gets kind of scrubbed out of some of the translations and the pieces that run uh, there in the mainland. I mean, how, how that debate internally, I mean, how, how, how are they talking about Venezuela specifically, but also Latin America as a whole? And how has it changed recently?
1: Yeah. I mean, as you, as you sort of alluded to, there's a real dearth at this point of information on Venezuela the, the country's name is just really not mentioned in, in the media, only really in passing. But what we've seen, you know, whether uh, through conversations, right, or in journal articles or other sort of academic publications over the years is actually a real debate about whether China's approach to, to Venezuela was um, particularly well thought out and a, a good and beneficial one in the long term or not. There are still those in China who believe that, uh, you know, these are long-term investments, that it makes sense to have something of a, a strong relationship with Venezuela, you know, with whatever government happens to be in power there, but also something of a foothold, um, equity, equity stakes, equity investment in oil fields, uh, because eventually things will change, things will potentially stabilize, and a lot of the loans that China has with Venezuela are are long term loans, thirty year loans, and so there is the distinct possibility that that oil prices will rise again uh, in the future, and that these this oil backed loan mechanism will again be pseudo effective. And so that's one one view, right? The other is much more pessimistic.
0: What's the pessimistic view?
1: The pessimistic view is that this was, you know. A situation in which China, at this point, and by China here, I mean China Development Bank under under Chairman Chen Yuan at the time, right, who was responsible for really taking the bank global, uh, really didn't do its due diligence when investing in Venezuela. And continued to invest over the years billions and billions of dollars with very little accountability. And at this point may have found, you know, put itself, put the Chinese banks in particular, but China's, also China's reputation. Uh, in the region um, in a rather precarious place and uh, that that was, you know, a risk that ought not to have been taken, at least not to the degree that it was. Uh, And so I do think we are seeing a degree of learning and that this, this particular viewpoint is now prevailing over the other as we see really no finance being given to to Venezuela at this point in time. And in addition to that, I mean, in 2018, I, this is maybe even more important, you know, Venezuela ended a grace period for Venezuela on its principal payments to China. And I think that really indicated a limit to China's goodwill toward, toward Maduro.
0: Well, they're not the first outside power to have, you know, a, t- a tough experience in the region. I, I, I sometimes I know in that issue we did in 2019, one of the points we made was that you know whether there have been successive uh, countries that over the years have made, um, you know, have grown their presence in Latin America, whether the the Spanish, the English, the Americans, and and so on, and and virtually everybody had you know, growing pains and learning experiences, whatever you want to call them, as a result. And, uh, you know, Venezuela is not indicative of the reality in most of the rest of the region. So I, I assume there's people in Beijing who understand that.
1: Certainly. Yeah, I think at this point.
0: So let's come into the present day now. and And, you know, when you try to assess the current relationship Oh, it's complicated and you know, it may elude our ability to really reference all the all the specifics here in the in the short time that we have together. But, you know, Even the countries that are sort of lined up on the center right and right of the ideological spectrum right now in Latin America uh, and are close with Washington and facing pressure from the Trump administration to limit or even curtail their business contacts and investment contacts with Beijing have really, at least in my view, been trying to very carefully walk that line. Not only governments like the ones on the Pacific coast, where uh, are more linked with China, like Ivan Duque in Colombia and Martin Vizcarra in Peru, Sebastián Piñera in Chile, but, you know, even the government of Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, which, you know, he employed such bellicose anti-China rhetoric during the campaign, but has struck, I think, heavily influenced by um, the business lobby within Brazil, uh, you know, has struck a much more pragmatic tone uh, now that he's in office over the last year or so. So I guess my question is, you know, back to this this original question that we raised at the beginning of the podcast. Is China in a position to be a white knight for Latin America again in the same way that it was back in 2008?
1: One, one thing that we've seen before COVID-19 is that there have been varying degrees of interest And engaging China and especially in in taking on Chinese finance, which has certain conditions, right, the use of Chinese companies and Chinese equipment. But now, you know, as the region really struggles with this health crisis, right, and then soon the implications of it from an economic perspective, we're going to see, I think, a lot more demand. We already are seeing a lot more demand for for financial help um, from any range of sources. Uh, But it stands to reason that China, you know, um, as a critical partner, economic partner for the region overall, could step in and become something of a white knight, come to the rescue in some form for some, at least some economies in in Latin America. And it's unclear, I think, whether China will do this and whether it does, I think, depends on a wide range of factors. Most importantly, China's own recovery prospects, um, which... Are troubling right Wuhan we heard yesterday that Wuhan opened um, there is now you know travel in and out of Wuhan but so many restrictions remain in place there and many thousands of, of, of Chinese businesses have closed entirely right over the course of just the past three months um, and China's growth projections as we all know are are, um, are bleak. Beyond that, there's this question of if China is even in a position, right, to to be able to issue finance or to invest um, more extensively or strategically in certain sectors, whether it wants to. You know, this risk profiling, potential risk profiling that we saw China doing over the past two or three years with respect to Venezuela and some other countries we might, you know, continue to see um, in in the coming Uh, months and years as China tries to rewrite its own uh, economic ship.
0: And as part of that calculation, I mean, we also know that that Beijing's interest in the region is not just economic. There is a geopolitical game here and it's a long term one. And so I guess another way of asking this question is, you know, beyond sort of the raw question of whether they think they'll get their money back if they extend a loan, whether it's to you know, Venezuela or Argentina or whoever. Do you have a sense of how strategic Latin America really is for them now? I mean, and and how maybe their feelings have changed over the last couple of years?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I in comparison to other regions, it's it's sort of hard to say, but certainly Latin America is of considerable strategic importance as a trade partner because it factors so heavily in China's own energy and food security calculus. Without Brazilian soy, China's in real trouble. There are other, of course, sources of soy, but Brazil has been so, so critical as a supplier of soy. And already we're looking at possible food shortages and soy shortages in particular in in China as a result of disruption of supply chains and other factors. But also, you know, we've seen a lot of investment in in Latin America in projects that have been deemed by others as not being particularly commercially invi- viable, um, which has led some to, to believe that these, you know, these investments usually in ports and other uh, sort of transport infrastructure may indeed have some, you know, strategic rationale. So, you know, there is that possibility that China could indeed Provide much-needed capital, much-needed investment at a time when others are not perhaps willing, based maybe not on economic rationale, but on a more strategic one, looking for particularly valuable strategic assets in the region.
0: You know, I'm 42, and I I, I guess I had the benefit of coming of age after the great power conflict in Latin America was over. Right, I mean, I, I the Latin America that I've grown up and been studying for the last twenty years was was the post Cold War Latin America, and and sometimes I'm glad for that. <laughs> I think more often than not because it's a it's a different way of looking at things. So the question I'm about to ask though is sort of perhaps a question from another era, which you know looks at this this you know competition between Washington and Beijing for influence and and power and. Uh, relationships in Latin America right now. If we're engaged in something like that, do you think this crisis will cause a meaningful change in that equation? I mean, do you see one one outside country becoming more influential than the other, or do you think it's still too early to tell?
1: Oh, gosh, I think it's still too early to tell how this is all going to to play out and what Views of China will be after all is said and done, and views of the U.S. response will be after all is said and done. But I do think some of the responses that we have seen, some of the more effective responses, have risked, you know, exacerbating democratic backsliding in certain cases and even authoritarian consolidation. Uh, so there are some real questions that we'll be asking in in the coming months, right after we, after all of this settles down, or or even longer.
0: So, Margaret, I'm curious to know what you think about the underlying premise of the question. Do you see this as a competition between the US and China, between Washington and Beijing? Does Beijing see it that way in your view? And do governments around Latin America also see things in terms of that competition?
1: I do believe that the US sees itself as in direct competition with China not only in the Latin American region but across the globe. Beyond that, I do think, yeah, of course, Latin American countries, whether they believe there ought to be, you know, a degree of, of competition, or there is, in fact, competition on the ground, are feeling the effects of US policy on on this particular issue, and a lot of pressure to align with one side or another, especially on, in, the, in acquiring certain technologies, 5G, for example, and in other areas. China, there's not an effort, you know, at least rhetorically, to call this a a, a competition. Um, but China continues to promote, even during the COVID-19 uh, crisis, the the superiority of the China model and this notion that countries across the world, including in Latin America, should look to the China model. Uh, And this has been, I think, what has really concerned uh, U.S. officials the most. So unless that stops, right, unless we stop seeing that sort of rhetoric, I think we'll continue to see a a really strong focus on U.S.-China competition here in Washington in particular.
0: Final question for you, Margaret. You know, the economic devastation from this pandemic, it looks like it's going to be terrible. And governments all over Latin America, really all over the world, but let's stay focused on the region, uh, are going to be trying to dig their way out of pretty devastating recessions. How do you think you know, governments like the ones in Argentina, Brazil, uh, Peru, uh, Chile, elsewhere, they're going to be looking to a variety of different sources of investment, capital, and export markets, and so on. What advice would you give those governments that are essentially looking to reverse this, you know, this, this stagnant period that we've seen in, in investment from Beijing over the last couple years?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think um, one really critical point of advice that would have potentially, you know, and to use Chinese phrasing, a sort of win-win outcome would, would be to look at, um, you know, some of the stimulus that China is proposing at home, which is still relatively limited, um, and some of the more... Creative solutions that some of China's officials have promoted at home, including a sort of green stimulus package. Right, um, something that has been discussed here in the U.S. as well, and to think about ways uh, to to align whatever you know infrastructure, other investment-related interests these countries may have with those particular initiatives that are being promoted, promoted at, at the provincial level in some cases, but also. Uh, at the central government level in China, I do believe. I mean, there are a lot of efforts underway right now to try to inc- to boost trade, not beyond you know previous levels, but to at least uh, retain high levels of global trade and to encourage um, inward investment into China, but also overseas foreign direct investment. And so, keeping a close eye on those those economic policies and ensuring that whatever. A government is proposing is well aligned um, with thinking in Beijing. I think makes makes a lot of sense. Also, proposing projects, of course, that you know will have some financial return for China, but will also be effective in maintaining a good reputation for China. China will be even more concerned about maintaining a good reputation and trying to avoid really public um, and embarrassing failures. Um, after all is said and done.
0: Thanks for listening to the America's Quarterly Podcast. You can read Margaret's most recent article at americasquarterly.org. Finally, if you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review, give us a rating, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The America's Quarterly Podcast is produced by Brendan O'Boyle and Katie Hopkins. America's Quarterly is an independent, not-for-profit publication of America's Society and the Council of the Americas. This has been Brian Winter. Thanks for joining us.